Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. Our hope is that this sermon will instill you with a profound sense of God's love and that you might receive and reflect His glory to your community. From 2 Samuel chapter 11, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, but David remained at Jerusalem. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. It's been a while since I've been up here. A couple weeks on vacation and recovering from my shoulder surgery. Thank you all for your wishes. It's getting there. It's not 100% yet, but Doc says it will be uh, soon. Anyway, we are going to continue our uh, summer sermon series with David, continue with that, and really... This whole series is a kind of a case study. And we've seen David, this rock star, uh, this young guy who now is a man. We've seen his rise to power. We've seen him in leadership. We've seen him courageous. We've seen him slay giants, right? We've seen this one key element of David's success. It's not that he's cool or hip or well-bred. It's because simply God blessed him. It's important to remember because David's success is not contingent upon David, but upon God. And the reason I say that is today we begin to see the fall, the brutal details of David's downward spiral. David's series of, I'll submit to you this morning, a series of seemingly insignificant, tiny little steps. But when strung together, you'll see in a moment, They show how sin and brokenness can bring down one of the most powerful men on earth. So today, the question stands, how does someone fall so far so fast? How does someone fall so far so fast? It's not great big spectacular wickedness that destroys David or you or me. What really happens is a series of small steps, a gradual approach. And so this this today is actually a a two-part sermon, this week and next week. Um, This week, I'm going to diagnose the problem, and next week, I'm going to give you the solution. So if you're not here next week, you're out of town, it'll be on the website. But this is a two-part sermon, so today we're going to diagnose the problem with David. It's our case study And then next week, we are going to look at the solution. But today, it's David's downward spiral with two points. First, David's neglect of the Word of God. And secondly, the evil in the human heart. Why does David fall? Well, simple. David neglects the will of God, firstly. And secondly, David forgets the evil of his heart. So the first thing, the neglect of the Word of God. We have been talking about David for the past four or five weeks. Father Greater and Father Switz have been doing all the preaching, actually. But if you've been here, you know that David was God's anointed. David is the golden boy. He was chosen by God. And if you know the story, once once God chooses David, David rises to the occasion. He's brave. He's strong. He's courageous. He's a leader. People follow him. David is, listen, a man's man. He's the kind of guy you want to raise your boys to be like. 
I had a friend of mine at Penn State, his name was Walt, in reference to himself would say, yeah, you know, girls dig me and guys want to be like me. (laughs) That's David. Everybody loved David. He was a rock star. He's a hero. Everybody wants to be like David. And so today, the text, this Bathsheba incident, occurs when David is at the very top of his game. Doesn't last long, but he's there. If you know the details, David has successfully become the king. He is enthroned. He has united the northern and southern kingdoms of the Jews, which is no easy feat. The Ark of the Covenant, he's brought back to Jerusalem. His throne, his throne finally is secure. And you might say, for David, right now, in chapter 11, life is good. (laughs) And that's actually part of the problem. Father Gritter said this last week, that as long as David realizes that it isn't about David, but about God, as long as David keeps his locus of control, not on him, but on God, David's good. The minute David begins to flip and put himself in place of God, things begin to unravel. Kind of like you (laughs) and me. As long as we remain in God's will, as long as we remain in his will, on the road, on the path, as long as we remain there, things are going to be okay. But as soon as we move and David flinches, the downward spiral, and it's bad, it's ugly, begins. Let me show you. It's a, it's a seemingly small step, but it's huge. Let me show you. David's downward spiral begins thusly. In the spring of the year, this time when kings go out to fight. You don't fight in the fall or the winter. It's too cold. In the spring, you go out and you fight. David sent Joab, his commander, and all the soldiers and all Israel, and they ravage, they fight the Ammonites, and they besiege Rabbah. But David, listen to this. It's key to the whole text. David remained in Jerusalem. Stop there. That little nugget tells you the whole story. David's army, David's the king, right? He is the, he's the ruler of the people. David's army are out in the field fighting in the trenches, fighting and dying for him, for David, the hero. And where's Dave? Out in the trenches, slogging it out with the boys? No. Leading from the front? Nope. David, he's home watching a Netflix series. A binge watch, right, they call it. And that's actually the key to the whole story. David's home. The next verse, verse 2, makes it even clearer. And I'll show you another. It seems minor, but it tells you that the, where his psyche has gone. Watch this. On the, he's at home. He's at home. David is not in Jerusalem. David remains in Jerusalem at home. Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and, there, and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from his roof a beautiful woman bathing. Did you catch it? Not only is David at home watching Netflix, while the army is in the field fighting and dying for him, but he's asleep on the couch until four o'clock in the afternoon. The slayer of giants, the slayer of giants has become a couch potato. These two small details that David remained at home and that he sleeps until four o'clock in the afternoon 
mark and demonstrate a radical shift. Listen, a radical shift in David's heart. A small, two small, seemingly insignificant steps towards evil. That's how evil works, friends. It always amazes me when people think of the devil as something scary, right? With a pitchfork and horns and a long tail and, you know, fire breathing. And that's another Victorian construction, by the way, along with gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This idea of the comic devil is, is a fabrication. It is not biblical. The devil is not frightening. The devil is not terrifying. The devil doesn't have a pitchfork and a long tail. No, 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 no. The devil is actually attractive. The name Lucifer, you've heard that before. Lucifer, right? You know what it means? It means light. The name Lucifer means the being of light. The point I want you to see here, because this is what happened to David, and it happens to you too, and me. Not only is the devil attractive, he's, he's a lot smarter than you are. He's certainly a lot smarter than I am. He's intentional. He's methodical. He is, he is damned persuasive. The devil's kind of like that friend of yours. <laughs> I've got a couple guys from Penn State like this. A couple friends of mine that were great guys, and they were always able to talk me into doing things I know I shouldn't have done, right? Hey, Rodriguez, how about a frat party? Man, I got to study. Oh, well, next thing you know, right? The devil's like that friend of yours that's able to talk you into things that you know you shouldn't do. Guys, that devil's kind of like that friend of yours that your wife says to you, you know, I don't like when you hang out with that guy. He's bad news. You know, this is the point I want you to see. The devil, the devil knows David, and he knows you too. And, da- and the devil knows David's weakness for beautiful women. David had two wives, right, which is more than he should have had. Now he's got three next. And the devil knows that about David. David knows it about David, but yet the devil places precisely that idea in in David's mind. Look, the devil is never going to tempt you with something that's not tempting. He's going to hit you exactly in your weakest spot. Imagine, here's David, up all night on a bender, sleeping on the couch till four o'clock, watching Netflix, and all of a sudden David gets the idea, hey Dave, hey, hey Dave, yeah, how about a nice stroll on the roof? Maybe that nice, cool air would help that headache you've got. Either you're the king after all. You deserve it. Come on, Dave, what do you say? <laughs> See my point. The devil's not stupid. He's smart, and he's smooth, and he's persuasive. The point is, too, that David, let's be honest, David knew better. <laughs> he knew better than to be on that roof. Bathsheba and Uriah were friends of theirs, he and his, and his wives. They live right next door. David knows what she's doing up on that roof. He knows better than to go up on that roof. He knew she was up there. He'd probably seen her for a week in, in advance. He'd seen her up there before, his friend's wife. But friends, that's how evil works, isn't it? We rationalize. We make excuses. One more cocktail, honey, please. Oh, no, really, I'm fine to drive. Oh, come on, God won't care if I don't pay my full tithe this year. Who's going to know if I just don't report that little thing on my tax return? Look, fill in your favorite lame excuse. I've got them too. 
The point is, the point is, friends, you and I allow the devil to convince us that what we know is wrong, is right. We allow it. David did too. He knew better. So here's the question. This is, a, this is not a story about David. It's a case study of David. It's about you and me. So here's the things. Let me throw a couple things out there for you. What, what, are, the, what are the things that tempt you? Do you know? Yes, you do. Maybe you're like David. Maybe it's beautiful women. That's a common one. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's alcohol or gossip or jealousy. Jealousy for those who have more or contempt for those who have less. Here's my pastoral word to you. For God's sake, stay off the roof. Stay off the roof. When I was a kid, um, I grew up uh, in the Catholic, Catholic faith. Um, we didn't go to church or anything, so I didn't really know a whole lot about it. But I remember one of the prayers that they said were to avoid the near occasions of sin. And that's an important, crucial thing. If you know yourself and know what tempts you, for God's sake, avoid those things. Stay off the roof. Do yourself and your loved ones a favor. Avoid those things that tempt you before they tempt you. Stay off the roof before it's too late. Well, David, like you, he chose poorly, like me. <laughs> and there, David says, you know, that roof sounds like a really good, I think I'm going to do, that's a good, I, I could really use some fresh air. And he goes up on the roof, and lo and behold, there is Bathsheba bathing in the pool, like she does every day at four o'clock. He spots her, Bathsheba, the wife of his friend, Uriah the Hittite. And if you notice the way the action moves, it's very fast. He sees her, he sends for her, she arrives, they have relations, and he sends her away. But there's a problem. A whoops. <laughs> Bathsheba's pregnant and uh, married to a guy named Uriah who happens to be in David's army. Who is out in the field fighting where David should be fighting? Fighting with the men, being willing to die for his king and country like David should be. And while he's out fighting, David's at home seducing his wife. It's despicable. It's like Real Housewives of Jerusalem, right? <laughs> and, he try, and David is clever. And this is the nature of evil too, right? Once you start, you can't put that genie back in the bottle, can you? What am I going to do? He's got to cover his tracks. So he tries, to, he tries to pin the pregnancy on Uriah. He calls him back from the battlefield and says, Hey, Uriah, why don't you go down to your house and wash your feet? That's a euphemism, by the way. For go and have conjugal visit with your wife. Finally, David says, Oh, man, this isn't going to work. I got an idea. I'll send him back to battle. This is, to me, to me the most perverse and lowest point that David reaches. He sends David after he realizes that he can't pin the pregnancy on Uriah because Uriah, unlike David, is not going to enjoy the company of a woman while the men are out fighting. David says, well, I'm going to have to do something. I got an idea. Hey, Uriah, hand me that piece of paper. And David actually writes on the letter, Dear Joab, who's the commander of the general in the field, take Uriah and put him in the front of the fight. And when the fight gets really heated, pull back so that Uriah is killed. He folds it up. He seals that letter, and he hands it to Uriah and says, take it back to the commander of the army, which Uriah, obedient soldier, does, and he's murdered for it. Here's what I want you to see. Here's the point, and it's, it's pretty gruesome. It's pathetic. David, 
the star of the show, the apple of God's eye, Rudy and Handsome, the slayer of giants, has become a liar, an adulterer, and a murderer. How's that happen? Well, two things, briefly. The first problem, the first reason David fell, first reason we all fall, <laughs> is because David neglected, point one, David neglected the Word of God. David neglected the Word of God. He knew better. He knew better. I'll never forget, back when I was the rector of Trinity Episcopal Church in Red Bank, New Jersey. Anybody know it? I was there for six years, and I went to the doctor there. He was a funny guy. Uh, he was a lapsed Roman Catholic. I can't think of his name. Doesn't matter. Anyway, he said he was, a he was a lapsed Roman Catholic, didn't go to church anymore. And I said to him once, well, Doc, why don't you go? And he said, ah, you know, that Catholicism, it's all about rules and regulations. All those rules, those, those thou shalt nots, he said to me, too many rules and regs. And I said, what? I said, come on, man, you're a doctor. And he looked at me and I said, you give people rules and regs all day long. That's what you do. Don't drink. Or don't, don't drink too much. Watch, don't smoke. Watch your cholesterol. Eat this way. Don't do this. Don't do that. Check your blood pressure. Red meat once a week. Right? Yada, yada. You've all been to the doctor. <laughs> Doc, don't tell me you're not about rules and regs. You're all about rules and regs. That's your whole ministry, your whole career. And I said, he goes, well, you know, you got a point there. And I said, well, but let me ask you, why do you have rules and regulations for your patients? He said, well, to keep them healthy. Ah, exactly, I said. Because you want to protect people from making bad decisions that will harm them and those around them. Is that right? He said, yes, I guess you're right. I said, well, guess what? You're all about rules and regs. Because it's the same way with God. God's word, the scripture, the rules and regs, the moral law, if you will, are there. Friends, they are there to protect you from you. They are there to protect you from those around you. Psalm 119, my, uh, my seminary, our, uh, our tagline, our motto, whatever you want to call it, was this, as follows. Thy word, O Lord, is a lamp to my feet so I can see where I'm going and a light to my path so I can see clearly. Let me just say this. If you see the Bible as a bunch of rules and regulations, if you see the Bible as a bunch of thou shalt nots, man, you've missed the whole point. God's moral laws are not there to restrict your freedom. In fact, on the contrary, they're there to actually, listen, they're actually there to give you freedom. God's moral laws are not there just to restrict your freedom. They're actually there to give you freedom. I'll give you an example. Anybody here have children? Little ones, particularly, or been around children. Anybody ever seen a child? Okay. You know, you know, kids, you ever met a kid with no rules? They don't call them rules anymore. They call them boundaries. You ever met a kid without boundaries? They're terrible little things. They're awful. They run around. They're crazy. They're dangerous to themselves and others. Without someone to love them and give them structures and restraints, those kids aren't free. On the contrary, they are in fact slaves to themselves, right? And as adults, it works the same way. We're no, we're no different. Look at the people, look at the celebrities. This is, 
the obvious ones who have all the freedom and wealth and ability in the world to do whatever they want. Whitney Houston, Anthony Bourdain. You tell me these people are free? Ask them. These people aren't anymore. They're free. They're slaves to their own desires. This is my point. Look, if God is your Father in heaven, which I submit to you that he is, you would expect him to give you rules just like a human father gives a human child rules to protect them. Let me challenge you, not, let me challenge you, friends, not to see God's moral law as restrictive but protective. I'm going to repeat that. Don't see God's moral law as restrictive but as protective, protecting you from you, just like a human father and mother would protect their children with rules of their own. But David, like me, like you, we ignore it. I know better. And that's part of the problem. David ignores God's word, but there's a second problem briefly I want to get to. And that's this, that David, listen, David neglects the evil of his heart. David neglects God's word, and he neglects the evil of his own heart. You know, um, you'll never see this on a refrigerator magnet. If you go to, like, the Hallmark store, you'll never see this Bible verse, I'll bet you. Um, Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The human heart is wicked above all things. You ever seen that? Me either. You ever see a refrigerator magnet? The human heart is wicked above all things. Well, it may not be comfortable, but it is true. (laughs) And David forgot that. David forgot something absolutely critical. That he, like me, and like you, is a sinner. And that he, like me, and like you, has a heart that is black. And that he, like me and you, are capable, given the right circumstances, of incredible evil and suffering. Given the right set of circumstances, the right stressors, the the right removal of social constraints. Remember New Orleans when that hurricane hit a couple years ago and all the social structures, the police couldn't get there, fire couldn't get there, social order broke down. What happened? Did everybody gather around and sing Kumbaya? No. It was every man for himself. It was chaos. Know why? The human heart is evil above all things. There was... 1971, 1971, a guy named Philip Zimbardo, a psychologist from Stanford University. Zimbardo, you could never do this today, but back in 71, you could. He devised what came to be known as the Stanford Prison Experiment. What Zimbardo did, he was a psychologist, he went out and he recruited, I don't know, 50 Stanford undergrads, right? Not a, not a group of uneducated people, by the way. Uh, he, uh, he got a bunch of 50 or 60 undergrads, and he randomly assigned them into one of two roles. They were either going to be prisoners or guards. And they, they created a mock prison cell in the basement of the psychology building at Stanford. Everybody knew it was fake. Everybody knew it was made up. You know what happened? Two days. Two days. The prison guards began abusing the prisoners, shooting fire extinguishers at them, stripping them naked, insulting them, humiliating them. Two days, the prisoners assume a victim mentality and begin to believe that they are, in fact, inferior. Two days it took. In fact, the results were so controversial. Go back and look at it. It's fa- I think there's a Netflix about this, too, actually. 
That was supposed to go for two weeks. That study, it lasted six days. They shut it down. Why? Well, here is what Dr. Zimbardo said. He made a lot of money off this too, by the way. But Philip Zimbardo concluded the following. The study demonstrated the power of situations to transform ordinary, normal young men into sadistic guards. The study demonstrated the power of situations to transform ordinary young men into sadistic guards. Or, to quote the prophet Jeremiah, the human heart, your heart and mine, is wicked above all things. And the reason I'm saying that to you, and again, there's good news next week, so come back. <laughs> uh, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just laying out the problem, the solutions next week. What I want you to see, friends, what I want you to consider, if you're going to fight this fight, if you're going to be successful in your attempt to try to overcome the devil's influence on your life, you've got to know your enemy, man. You've got to know. And I want you to consider there's a little bit of David in you, maybe a lot, that given the right set of circumstances, there resides in each of us the capacity for unspeakable evil. So, let me challenge you to stay close to God's word. David didn't, but I challenge you to stay close to God's word. You know, Jesus says, Jesus says, happy are those, listen to this, happy are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Stay close, first point. Second point, for God's sake, don't underestimate evil. It is real. It affects us all. It affects me. It affects you. It affects David. But it cannot destroy you as a Christian. And we're going to talk about that next week. That's how we pray. Father, we thank you for David, for the story of his rise and fall, for the scripture which pulls no punches in describing human frailty. Lord, keep us close to your word. Keep our hearts vigilant about our own actions and remind us that we, like David, are in a war and it is only by the power of Jesus that we can be victorious. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.